We've got quite a morning, <laughs> haven't we? All right, let's pray. God, <coughs> help us. <sighs> Give us understanding beyond um, beyond our natural abilities, God. Give us understanding. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our story for today is set amid one of the most exciting times in the life of the early church. In the past few weeks, if you've been with us, most of you have, we've seen how even in the face of persecution, the early church continued to grow strong. They were bold in evangelism and selflessly cared for one another. The church, the early church in Jerusalem, was a well-balanced community that looked inwards and outwards. For every member, the church became a little taste of heaven on earth. And it seemed things could only get better until one day this loving, caring, focused church community experienced a disruption. Something shocking happened that snapped them back to reality. Listen guys, what we're about to look at this morning is based on actual events that took place between 60 and 80 AD in the city of Jerusalem. Actual events. Look at verse 1 again and 2. This verse 1 and 2, it says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. As we saw last week, it was common for members of the church to sell property and donate the proceeds to the church to help the poor and needy. A man named Barnabas was used as an example of the radical generosity displayed by many in the church. Barnabas was not only used as an example of radical generosity, but also as a backdrop for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and his wife Sapphira were members of the church at the time. Impressed and inspired by the generosity of Barnabas and others like him, um, they wanted to do the same. So they discussed the idea of selling one of their properties to help the poor. Everything goes according to plan. They successfully sell their property. They withhold a percentage of the sale price for themselves and donate the remainder to the church's benevolence fund. At this point, there seems to be no issue with their decision to keep a percentage from the sale. In fact, they come across as being really generous. The fact that they were willing to sell a piece of property they owned and donate a percentage of the proceeds to a deed 
um, uh, uh, proceeds is a deed deserving of respect. Eleanor and I have been watching the Bill Gates documentary on Netflix. Um, it's a docu-series um, that doesn't just tell the story of how he built Microsoft, but it also looks at how Bill Gates has donated millions, millions of do dollars to alleviate sanitation issues and viral diseases in developing countries. Like he has been incredibly generous. In the age of COVID-19, many celebrities and, and um, athletes have made donations to help combat the virus. Um, I read of a soccer player recently who decided who decided to donate three months of his salary to help combat this pandemic um, when wealthy people people in general um, are generous with their possessions um, for the purpose of good causes it's something we applaud and celebrate and ananias and sapphira seem to be um, first century examples of this kind of generosity. But their actions may appear to be deserving of respect and praise. We'll soon find out it's actually driven by corrupt motives deserving of severe punishment. In our day and age, we donate money to our local church through our online giving platform. You go online um, and you type in or enter your details, you click donate and bang, you've made your donation to the church. Um, when making a donation to the church, um, in the you know in the days of the first century in the church in Jerusalem, when you were making a donation, you would simply bring your donation and lay it at the apostles' feet. This was an act of trust in the authority given to the apostles because the apostles were the leaders of the church at the time. And so um, you brought the money and put it at your, their feet and that you trusted the authority, the God-given authority, that they would oversee and distribute the money in the best way possible and then you would leave and that was it but after Ananias submitted his donation at the feet of the apostles something wasn't quite right and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit exposes the issue look at verse 3 but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man but to god with these words peter has just uncovered a rare case of deceitful hypocrisy within the church. It's like Peter pulls back the curtains and shows us what was really going on, and that is Ananias' deeds may have appeared good and righteous, 
but in reality it was polluted by deceit the first thing peter reveals to us about ananias is that satan has filled his heart this is satan's first recorded appearance in scripture after the death and resurrection of Christ when he suffered defeat. And Satan plays a key role in the life and actions of Ananias. It's as if Ananias was under um, the influence of Satan. And we're going to be looking at this more later. Next, because Ananias was under the influence of Satan, he lied to the Holy Spirit. Look at the beginning of verse 3 again. It says, but Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, go down and look at the end of verse 4. Peter says exactly the same thing in a different way. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. From Peter's rebuke, we get a better understanding of the Holy Spirit, who has, at this point, played a pivotal role in the, in the birth and life of the church. First of all, we find out that the Holy Spirit is a genuine person and we know that to be true because you can't lie um, if the Holy Spirit was a force or electricity you couldn't lie to him could you you just couldn't um, and so the fact that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit um, means that he is a real and genuine person second the Holy Spirit is not just a real and genuine person, he's also God. And this part, verse, um, verses 3 and 4, help us um, with that. So far, here's what we know. A man named Ananias sells one of his properties. He decides to give some of the proceeds to the church. And then he's accused of lying to the Spirit of God. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Why is he randomly accused of lying? For sure, we know that it wasn't because he decided to keep some of the money from the sale of his property. Peter clarifies this in verse 4, that the money was his to invest in any way he wanted. That wasn't the issue at all. The text doesn't directly tell us what the lie was, but it hints at it. The reason Ananias was accused of lying to the Spirit of God was because he led them to believe that he was donating all the proceeds he had gained from the sale of his property when he had kept some for himself. Russ Ramsey says this, their willingness to help their new brothers and sisters in need was noble, but their hearts were conflicted. Though they were willing to give and give generously, they also wanted to appear selfless in their generosity without having to actually be selfless. His sin was deceit. 
he misrepresented the truth and the consequence of his sin was severe. Look at verse 5. Look what happens. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. One minute Ananias is standing firmly on his feet, the next he's lying lifeless on the floor. Look at verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Um, and so, yeah, after three hours, his wife walks in, not having a clue what had happened to her husband. We don't know what led her there. Maybe um, she was concerned her husband had been gone longer than planned. And so she decided to investigate to find out where he was and um, where they donate money to the church is you know, it's where she thought he would be. Um, maybe um, the reason why she's there is because the apostles sent for her to share the tragic news of her husband's shocking death. Or it's likely she may have heard about the shocking death of a member of the church and suspected it could be her husband. So she went to investigate. We don't know the real, real reason as to what led her there, but we know she's there. And she's standing before the apostles, not knowing that three hours ago, her husband fell down and breathed his last in the very room she's now standing in. Look at verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And so, yeah, it's a good question. Hey, uh, did you sell the, the, you know, the land you guys sold? Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's this the amount of money you got it for. And how did she respond? She said, yes, for sure. After she answers, the place, you can imagine what it must have been like. You know, the, the apostles and the community and whoever was there has just witnessed someone die because they lied. Um, and then their wife comes, um, tells the same lie. And you just can imagine the room must have been dead silent. Before she said anything else, Peter exposes her deception and passes judgment on her. Cut verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And as soon as Peter was done with his indictment, look at verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out um, and buried her beside her husband. And as a result of what just happened, look at verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Ananias and Sapphira opened the door to Satan. Their actions were premeditated, they were intentional, they were planned, they were partners in deception and were severely punished. This story raises so many questions. Questions like, 
Why did God kill a husband and wife just for lying? Why were they not given an opportunity to confess and receive forgiveness? Was God unmerciful? Does he still kill people for lying today? We know their death was a result of God's judgment, but what was the actual cause of their death? Was it a heart attack caused by the shock of their guilt? Or were they struck down by a flash of lightning that appeared out of nowhere? All these questions are absolutely valid and expected. And we can spend, trust me, I have spent incredible amount of hours and we could spend hours studying and thinking through these questions and many more. But we don't have the time this morning, do we? We don't have the time. But what we do have time for is a few, is to look at a few truths and lessons clearly revealed to us in this story with hopes that they will begin to answer some of our questions. The first truth we learn from this story is that Satan is real and he hates the church. Satan is real and he hates the church. As Peter exposed the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, he makes it clear that the source of their deception was Satan. In verse 3, he says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In a church of our size, it's possible that there are differences of opinion when it comes to Satan, a.k.a. the devil or the serpent. Some of you are obsessed with Satan and blame him for every bad thing that happens in your life. There was a time in my life when I was obsessed with Satan and I blamed him for every bad thing that happened in my life. When my car breaks down, I'm like, it's the devil. The devil did it. No, it wasn't, Obed. You should have got that oil change. And you should, you should not have avoided all the flashing red lights on your dashboard, okay? Also, there was, you know, I would lose a job. Oh my gosh, the devil made me lose a job. No, it wasn't, all right? I was procrastinating. I wasn't working hard. Some of us are obsessed with Satan and blame him for everything. And for some of you, you think Satan is nothing more than a made-up character like Santa Claus or a villain from superhero movies. He's not real, you say. He's just a fictional character some creative genius in LA came up with. But according to the Bible, um, Satan is real. Um, he isn't to be blamed for everything, but he's absolutely real and active in this world and in your life 
He's described in the New Testament as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. 2. He's also described as the God of this world who blinds the minds of all who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 4. He's also described in 1 Peter 5.8 as being like, as um as as a lion right a roaring lion that roams around looking for someone to devour and if that wasn't bad enough john 8:44 says that satan is a liar and the father of lies this means that he loves to operate in darkness in other words Satan creates and thrives in deceitful environments. And so it makes sense that the deceptive actions of Ananias and his wife were controlled and dictated by Satan. This must also mean that whenever we live in any kind of deceit, we're either under the influence of Satan or inspired by him. This is known as demonization. Demonization is different from demon possession. It's used to describe Satan's influence on both believers and non-believers. Right. It's when Satan gets someone so obsessed with something, they lose control and are blinded to the consequences. There's a big debate about whether Ananias and Sapphira were Christians or not. But most scholars, most commentators believe that they were saved. But they were just they were under the influence of Satan. And so just a few questions for you. If you are, obs are you, okay, obsessed with hiding the truth about yourself? Are you living a lie? Is there something you've been hiding that you need to confess? Where are you putting up a false front? Where in your life are you pretending to be better than you are? And if you are obsessive in these ways, and there's so many other ways Satan can influence us, if you're obsessive in anything that causes you um, to be blinded um, um, to the consequences of sin, maybe you are under the influence of Satan. Satan hated the early church and was hell-bent on stopping her progress. And guess what? He hates King's Cross Church, and he's determined to do all he can to discourage us and destroy us. Think about it. The early church at this time, before this incident, were just thriving. They were exploding. They were loving and caring for each other. They were um, continuing on the mission God has called them to. And then suddenly there's this disruption. There's um, a couple that become obsessed with um, um, being, being their significance and prominence and begin to lie to the church. 
just as um, Satan used a couple in the first century church to act in deceit and at, um, at deceit, at times what he'll do is he'll leverage the weaknesses of, of members in our church to derail the mission God has for us. Trust me, um, it, it's happened and Satan will do all he can to divide our church because he just hates our church and he hates what we're doing. Now, the story warns us to take Satan seriously and be mindful of his tactics against the church. But what we must do is be careful not to get so consumed with Satan. It creates fear and discouragement in our life. That's why it's so important whenever we talk about Satan to do so through a gospel lens. What I mean by that is we need to remember when we talk about Satan that someone, Jesus, is greater, wiser, stronger and better in every way than Satan. Okay, And he has defeated Satan. Satan and demons are real, powerful and evil. But Christ, through his perfect life, sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, has conquered Satan and his demons. All right. So that was the first. Satan is real and he hates the church. Second, God loves his church, therefore hates all sin. God loves his church, therefore hates all sin. Satan may hate the church, but we can find comfort in knowing that God loves his church. And because God loves his church, he is committed to sustaining the purity of his church. That is why um, he hates all sin. All right. Um, because what sin does is that it contaminates, it pollutes his church. Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God for lying. It's not as if they murdered someone or robbed a bank and donated some of the money to the church. They lied about keeping a small percentage of their own money and God violently judged them for it. For most of us, their punishment seems way too extreme. Just doesn't seem to make sense that God would severely judge them in this way um, because they lied. And these feelings and opinions are expected. But when we think and feel this way, way what we're possibly doing is this. We are possibly categorizing sin. Like hot sauce. Just bear with me, I'm going somewhere. Like hot sauce, we can develop a rating system for sin. We have mild sin, hot sin, and extra hot sin. All right, and I'm using hot sauce because we have Nando's here. Cat knows about it and all the Brits, and I love the Nando's hot sauce. All right, all right. Uh, we have mild sin, hot sin, and extra sin. We, you know, we say mild sin is like lying, you know, gossip, laziness, pride. That's mild sin. And then 
We have hot sin. Oh, we want to stay away from hot sin. Hot sin is, you know, sex before marriage, outbursts of rage, lying about taxes, whatever, whatever. And then we have extra hot sin. You you don't want to commit this. You want to stay well clear. And they're like murder, adultery, abuse, etc. and etc. And I get the logic behind our tendency to categorize sin, you know, because there are degrees of seriousness of sin. All right. And so we naturally what we naturally do is categorize sin and say, man, this sin is really bad because of these consequences. We judge sin based on the impact or the consequences. Um, and the logic seems fine. But according to God, sin is sin. He does not have a rating system for sin. He does not differentiate between unacceptable sins and unacceptable sins. God hates all sins. He has an equal hatred towards all sin. And the ruthless judgment of Ananias and Sapphira for lying is one of many examples in scripture of how much God hates all sin. And because God has an equal hatred for all types of sin, we should too, as his church. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, and if you've not read it, note it down and grab it, Respectable Sins. Um, he's concerned that many Christians have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. He goes on to say, it's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins of gossip, pride, envy, bitterness and lust or even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And so the question is, what sinful thoughts, words or actions have you been tolerating in your life and in the life of others? What sinful thoughts, words or actions have you been entertaining? In your life and in the life of others what sins do you tend to overlook or classify as mild if we are to thrive as a church family on mission with Jesus in San Diego then we must take all sins seriously and be willing to deal with sin by confession or confrontation. King's Cross Church, we must take all sin seriously. Lastly, one of the things we learn from um, this story is that judgment for sin reveals God's love. Judgment for sin reveals God's love. This sad and shocking story serves as a warning. A warning for us to not tolerate sin, but walk carefully and humbly with God. The story of Ananias and Sapphira may spark many questions and cause much confusion, 
But believe it or not, it's a story that, if given the time, will create gratitude in your heart if you're a believer and offer you hope if you're not a Christian. This story uh, yeah, reminds me uh, of the guy or girl who doesn't have the best of first impressions, <laughs> okay? You meet them and you're like, oh my gosh, who is this person? They are so odd. But spend time with them, get to know them, and you'll begin to think they're kind of awesome and they have some great qualities about them. In a similar way, this story doesn't have the best of first impressions, all right? The couple just got judged by God for lying. Doesn't have the best of first impressions, okay? I'm sure it's not going to be the passage you point your new, you know, so your friends who are new Christians to, like, oh yeah, read Ananias and Sapphira. No, you're not going to do that, right? Doesn't have the best of first impressions, but... The more we get to know the story, the more we'll find that it's radiating with grace. Why? Because above all, it's a story that magnifies God's unexplainable love. It's a story of how judgment for sin displays God's mind-blowing love for his church. God has not changed. Let me remind us. God has not changed. He's he is he still judges sin. Okay? You know, one commentator says one of the main errors for some Christians uh, to make is the notion that God is a gracious father who forgives and often overlooks the faults of his children. God doesn't do that. Well, how do we know that? I mean, Hebrews 12, 6 is an example. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises everyone he receives as a son, right? God loves us because he loves us, right? He's not going to overlook, you know, our faults and our sins. You know, we don't want to live. I mean, we don't do that to our kids. I have kids and it would not be right for me as a parent to overlook um, their faults and some of the bad things they do and it's the same with God he doesn't overlook but the story of Ananias and Sapphira doesn't primarily exist to warn us about the reality of God's judgment or warn us about the consequences of sin no the main purpose I believe of the story is to also emphasize God's relentless love um, for sinners, which is fully displayed in his decision to send his only son to die a shocking and excruciating death. And in doing so, Jesus absorbed the penalty and punishment of sin we rightly deserve. It's on the bleak backdrop of, backdrop of this tragic story that allows God's love and grace to shine brightest. God's violent judgment of Ananias and Sapphira displays God's hatred for sin. And because of this, it also absolutely displays his unconditional love. This means that if you're a Christian, 
If you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you have escaped the eternal judgment of sin. You no longer have to deal with God's righteous and holy wrath against your sin. On the cross, Jesus died the death you deserved. He absorbed God's wrath for you. And because of his sacrificial death, you have escaped the devastating penalty and eternal punishment for your sins. Because of this, God is your father. And he loves you and he's for you. And from now on, all you will ever know is God's grace. Although your sins may be many, but God's grace is more. And God's love and his grace doesn't always mean um, he's not going to discipline you. He will discipline you. He loves his church and he's committed to continuing to sustain the purity of his church and at times he will deal strongly with us but when he does know that he will always communicate his love and his care and we'll see how he how much he just loves us king's cross church may stories of god's display of righteous judgment create in us more of an appreciation for Jesus' death on the cross because it's through his death we escape the eternal judgment we deserved for our sins i love what john bunyan says he says a sight of him as he hanged there for your sins will dissolve your heart into tears and make it soft and tender Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, your truth. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. When we look at stories like this, it creates in us much gratefulness. Why? Because it reminds us that we have escaped your holy and righteous wrath. And it also reminds us of your love in sparing us. God, Father, as we think through this passage, may your spirit lead us. May your spirit help us. Um, and we may we gain more and more of an understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.